Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. Uh, <laughs> I'm Justin Burt, joined tonight by Dr. Chris the Chu Manchu and our wonderful producer, Dr. Audra Ines. Say hi, Audra. What's up? Hi, everyone. It's good to be back. It's great to have you. We had an excellent episode, non-accidental trauma, not only great content, but also some great resources. So be sure to check out the show notes on this outstanding episode. Before we go too much into it, though, Chris, can you tell us about the show? Sure. We're the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. We have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Kristen Fortin. She is a pediatrician in Philadelphia specializing in child abuse and serves as medical director of the Fostering Health Program at Safe Place Center for Child Protection. She teaches us about how to approach child abuse like any other diagnostic complaint, how to assess for red flags concerning for physical abuse, and how to use evidence-based exam tools and clinical pathways to support patients with signs of non-accidental trauma. Dr. Kristen Fortin, we are so excited to have you. Welcome. Welcome to the Cribsiders. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me and for choosing this topic. We are excited to have you. We're lucky to have you. And it's a topic that is challenging for a lot of residents, attending students. And so I think we can learn a lot. Before we dive into content, we'd love to get to know you a little bit better. And first, by because we're an informal group, I want to make sure um, it is okay. Can we call you by your first name, Kristen, for the for the duration of the episode? Yes. Excellent. If uh, throughout the episode, if you change your mind and decide you want to be uh, ma'am or royalty, uh, uh, done. Perfect. We'll do royal royal salutations. We could pick um, something fun. Absolutely. I, I absolutely. hear England has an has an opening. Yeah. Yeah. Hashtag too soon. Oh, um, it's okay. By the time this airs, oh, oh wow, Kristen's holding up a cup of the Queen Mother. Right? Is that what we call her, the Queen Mother? No, she's the Queen. Mm-hmm. That was the Queen. The Queen, just the Queen. <laughs> I I'm not really good with the uh, the hierarchy. I. Um, I need to watch the crown. Um, but so let's go ahead and, uh, get to know, uh, our wonderful guest a little bit more. Um, Kristen, do you mind giving us a little bit of an introduction, maybe a one-liner that, uh, includes something maybe outside of medicine that you enjoy? Sure. So I'm a pediatrician and I'm currently working in Philadelphia, but I did all of my training in Canada and I'm Canadian and I did my fellowship in the United States and I've stayed there since then. And I really enjoy running and being outdoors. Ah, amazing. I uh, have recently developed a huge taste for Canadian television. Um, Shit's Creek, obviously a classic. I was going to say that. Shit's <laughs> um, Creek. One of, the best, uh, one of the best TV series. Um, but more recently, and I, uh, it's a little bit of a an odd show. I'm, I'm blabbering. But uh, Letter Kenny, is that one that you're familiar with? It's, uh, it's on it's, Netflix, isn't it? It's on Hulu. It's a little oh, more Hulu. crass, but it's it's art. It's worth seeing. It is a unique experimental show. I think it's modern Shakespeare, but I haven't found anyone else that agrees. The with dialogue me, so. is 
The dialogue is, yeah. It's, I don't know that one, but I think it is important to highlight that Degrassi is a Canadian show. For wow. For people who don't know that. I, I was unaware. And that's where that's where Drake got to start. Well, Drake came from the second version of Degrassi. There was an original oh. Degrassi, and then that was... The next generation? This My mind's being blown. That's amazing. I didn't know that that was uh, a remake. Canadians uh, produce quality stuff. Uh, learning stuff already. This is amazing. Um well, we they can have just wrap to. it up right there, <laughs> right? Isn't isn't there a law that uh, only like a, a large, uh, like a certain percentage of the programming has to be Canadian oh. to be on like uh, Canadian broadcast? That I, I think don't know. Yeah, I think I there's did, a law. I grew up in Montreal, and in Quebec, there is a law about like all signage has to be in French. So that's what I thought you were going to say about the languages. <laughs> the preservation of the French language. Um, uh, Doctor Fortin, is is your name in? Um, True French Canadian pronunciation is it really uh, uh, Fortin? How, how, what, what, I blew it. I blew it. I couldn't blew even. It. I like how you say it. I try. Um, is it right. true Montreal has the best bagels? I yes, I definitely agree. I have friends who disagree with, and they like the New York bagels, but for my taste, Montreal bagels. I actually have a T-shirt with the Montreal bagel. I could have worn that. For <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Audrey, do you want to do an intro question? Sure. Thank you. So I'm actually quite curious. I know we talked a little bit about TV shows, but do you have any recommendations for a book that might be good for our audience to look into? So I actually wanted to mix it up and give you a song. Mm. Um, and it's, oh. it's Rainbow by Casey Musgraves. And even if you don't like country music, still listen to it. Because I think today we're going to be talking a lot about like physical abuse workup and how to identify physical abuse. But I think it is always important to consider the broader role of the pediatrician in helping families that have experienced trauma. And when you listen to this song, it really illustrates giving guidance to people about trauma symptoms and coping with trauma. So the song is about someone who's caught up in a storm and like trying to keep their head above the waterline. But then Casey Musgraves is actually telling them, like, do you don't realize that the storm is actually over and there's a rainbow around you? So it, it really does represent, I think, what we do with anticipatory guidance for trauma and in pointing out trauma symptoms so that people can start to heal from that. So I think it's a worthwhile to listen to it. This is amazing. This is going to be the theme song of the episode that's uh, touching and very unique. This is this is a great start. Um yeah, when you listen to it, I think with that lens, you really will see a side of the song. And when you watch it on YouTube, there's a lot of comments that people write in, and you can really see that it impacts a lot of people like that. Oh, wow. Um, that's amazing. I'm really excited to listen. I don't know if I – I'm familiar with Casey Musgraves. I don't know if I'm familiar Are with Are you a country uh, music Rainbow. fan? I, originally from Texas, so okay. I was I was raised on, on country music. Um, Justin's so I, wearing cowboy boots as we speak. I wear cowboy boots everywhere. Not and I'm in Houston, so I need to get up to speed. So that's a great recommendation. Thank you. <laughs> this is great. I'm sorry right. for those who don't like country music, but again, it really is worth worth a listen. This is amazing. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I am excited to listen. And what a perfect segue. Maybe we can dive into some content. But before we do that, let's hear from one of the sponsors that helped support the show. This episode is brought to you by Pattern Life. 
Shopping for disability insurance can be complicated and time-consuming. You're a busy doctor. You shouldn't have to worry about whether or not you're getting the best rate looking for all the available discounts. Trying to research all options and make the right decision while in training especially can make the process even more overwhelming. Residents shouldn't have to do this. Pattern believes doctors have more important things to do than spend hours sorting through these options. This is why thousands of doctors trust Pattern to help them compare and understand disability insurance the way they are buying it. They do this in three steps. One, request your quotes online for you. Two, compare all your options and ask questions. And three, secure your policy. Be confident you have the right policy so that your income is protected. You have invested a lot in the assets that is your brain. With huge discounts for doctors and training and decreased requirements on labs and physicals, now's the best time to request your disability insurance quote with Pattern. You can go to patternlife.com slash cribsiders. That's patternlife.com slash cribsiders to get your quote. And so, Audra, do you want to start us off with our first case? Sure. Thank you. Uh, so we have a 16-month-old female presenting to Cashlack Children's Hospital, uh, Tamara. She is here with her mother for a gait problem. One week ago, the patient was playing with the family dog when she slipped and fell. She has since been resistant to bearing weight on her leg. An x-ray is obtained, which reveals a right femur fracture. So before we go any further with this case, would you please define for us non-accidental trauma? Sure. And you can also use the terms physical abuse, child physical abuse, inflicted injury. And broadly defined, it refers to an injury that's inflicted on a child. It could actually be a more complicated question because there are specific legal definitions that can even vary from state to state. So if you are interested in those legal definitions, you can look up on Child Welfare Information Gateway. They have a website that will link you for each state and give you this really long definition of what it is in your state. And this is something that obviously is in the back of the mind in a lot of injuries and presentations. But can you tell us a little bit about when should we be concerned about non-accidental trauma? For, for Tamara in this case with a femur fracture, is that a red flag? Or, or what are the red flags that um, are clear, almost pathognomonic signs that this is something we should be worried about? So I think for, that's a really great question to start with because you really need more information to answer that question. And in this case, you're given like some information about a child who's probably in an age group where she can walk. So she could technically like get into to accidents. Um, and you're given the information that she has a femur fracture. And then there's also some like hint of a week ago, some you're thinking about a delay in care. So in order to assess that objectively, the first part of the question of if there a concern for physical abuse, what you want to know is, is the injury that the child have explained by an accidental mechanism or another medical condition? You're looking objectively at like what is the injury and what happened and, and what are all the factors and all the information. So here you just have a small amount of information about an accident that happened. So you really need a ton of more detail about what the accident was, what exactly happened, and what the child's developmental level is. And then another key piece of information we're missing is that you mentioned there's a femur fracture, but not what type of femur fracture. And there are multiple types of fractures, like a buckle fracture, a transverse fracture, green stick, spiral, oblique. And each fracture will be associated with a different mechanism of injury. And also, when you think about the symptoms of a child would have can vary with fractures. So a child who has a small buckle fracture 
could have different symptoms in a child with a displaced transverse femur fracture. So you really need to know a ton of more information before you're answering that question. And I admit this is something that maybe is out of my expertise because I'm not an emergency medicine physician or orthopedic, but if I saw a child in urgent care and you know there was a story that seemed relatively plausible and noticed a fracture, I don't know that I, my first thought would be like, oh, is this story consistent? I'd be like, oh, this is what, what's going on. Whereas I remember learning, you know, femur fractures are something that should send the, the spider senses up. Are there specific injuries or, or where, where, when should we start thinking about, is this consistent with the fracture? How can we learn about if a fracture is consistent with the story, things yeah. like that? So that's a common thing that people say, like some of the older textbooks will say, like anytime you have a spiral fracture, that's concerning, but that's not actually the case. So there's different things that we're talking about. One is like the specific fracture morphology, and then there's also the bone that's fractured. So we can start with one and then do the other one as well. So there are some fractures that do have a higher specificity for inflicted trauma. So when you see them, that would raise your level of concern. Of course, for every single injury, you're going to consider the history and the context and the child's age, but just some fractures that have a higher specificity for child abuse would be fractures of the sternum, rib fractures, fractures that are called um, CMLs or classic metaphyseal lesions, which can also be called like bucket handle or corner fractures that are um, specific to children who are still um, growing, where you have like a chip around the metaphysis, which is the weakest part of the bone. So those are types of injuries that have a high specificity for abuse that you're going to be concerned about. And then again, you're, you're always going to consider the whole situation. Um, some, another thing that could be concerning is if a child has multiple injuries at the same time, that's something that you're, you'll start with a higher level of concern. So that's one is just the actual, like where the fractures are. In terms of the fracture morphology, that's really going to help you in the case when you gave, like there's an example of a, an injury that happened and you want to see, does that injury like make sense with the fracture I'm seeing? That's when you want to look at the specific fracture morphology. So would you like me to explain a little more about the different types and? I think, I think it'd be wonderful. And, and, uh, you know, even, yeah, I think this would be a great resource if there's resources to look up or yes, if we can go through them, if, uh, I think that would be very helpful. Perfect. So I can definitely send you an article that has a great reference about morphology of long bone fractures. If people are interested in, um, reading more by Dr. Mary Clyde Pearson colleagues, but the kind of the long bone fracture types, one that we see, the first I mentioned is a buccal fracture. So that can happen with low en energy and a compression force. So let's say an older child falls on an outstretched hand and then gets a compression um, that could lead to a buccal fracture. There's transverse fractures, which would like be trans uh, fractures right across the bone. And those are higher energy fractures. So that would be like a bending force or a direct blow. And then there are spiral and oblique fractures, which have some twisting involved. And like our patient is um, mobile and a lot of people don't realize that children who are able to walk, like two-year-olds, they can get a spiral femur fracture, but accidentally. Like a lot of times the history will be that they slipped on something wet and kind of did the splits or twisted and they can get a femur fracture. But sometimes people aren't aware of that and that will like, they have maybe read in the past that if you have a femur or a spiral fracture, that's you know definitely a concern. 
So those are just some examples of the different fracture morphologies and, and why you'd want to know that information when you're assessing you know, the history, if that makes sense. Yes. And thank you so much for explaining uh, all those details. I was curious too, just when we're talking about history taking, how you'd approach the concern for delay in care and what sorts of questions you might ask to further assess what could be attributable to that. Yeah. So again, you, you really would want to know the type of fracture. So some fractures, like if a patient has a buccal fracture of their arm, they might, you know, have symptoms, but it might not be like they're not in extreme pain. So sometimes those fractures do take longer to come in versus if it's a transverse displaced fracture, which is obvious to everybody that, you know, the, when the patient comes in that the limb is deformed and the patient's in severe pain. So you'd want, you'd think about those injuries differently. And then it really is important to ask questions about it. And, you know, when you get the history of, of the injury happening a week ago, asking, you know, what was the child like? What were their symptoms like? And what did you do in response? And sometimes we have history where a parent says, I went to my pediatrician's office and they sent me home. Or they, I had a patient once where they had a femur fracture and someone just like examined the patient's ears and never examined and they got sent home. So really asking those questions, maybe you'll find an answer like that would make sense why, you know, maybe the parent did seek care somewhere else and was sent home, or maybe they're, they're giving it, they didn't have access to care versus, you know, someone who just had a delay in care when the child really had a lot of symptoms. You know, this has been, I think, a very helpful way of kind of the specificity of things like fractures, which I think is something where, is one where, again, I, I often think about non-accidental trauma. But I'm also curious more broadly, how do children with non-accidental trauma typically present? Is it a fracture? Is it persistent emesis? Are there clear illness scripts? Um, I mean, is it fracture? What, what are the things where um, a provider typically picks up on something going on at home or elsewhere? That's a great question because there are some patients who come in with an injury, so they'll present with something visible like bruising. So that makes people think about an illness script of trauma. But there's also patients who will come in with a medical chief complaint. And some of those are also very nonspecific. And that's where it's like hard for people to, to think about trauma because like if an infant comes in for vomiting, there's such a huge differential diagnosis. Um, and or sometimes with the fracture patients, they might come in with a chief complaint of limb disuse. So you're thinking of osteomyelitis or transit synovitis, and you're you don't necessarily think of trauma right away. So though that makes one of the difficulties in recognizing child abuse. But I think for the head trauma that some of the chief complaints that we see are apnea, vomiting, those are like, if you have those chief complaints, so just think about it in your differential and make sure you do a really thorough skin exam, see if you can, like, if there are signs of trauma. I think that's a good first step. I wanted to ask too, we have a child that's relatively young, 16 months old, but at what age can you also start getting pertinent aspects of the history from the child? Like when you start asking the child for the story? So there are Actually, I was in my training able to take a class on interviewing children, and there's actually a huge literature on how to take histories from children to make sure that you're asking them in an appropriate way. And when people, some children who are, um, when you made a report to Child Protective Services, and they actually can undergo 
a forensic interview with a trained interviewer. And usually those interviewers will start at the age of four. And there's some children who are four who aren't able to participate. And then there's some children who are three who are extremely advanced and verbal who are able to participate. And so you can really judge, you know, based on the language skills of the child. And there are, like, you really want to also make sure that you're asking a questions in a way that aren't suggestible. And children usually up to the age of eight or nine are more suggestible than other older children. But even adults, like if we did, um, like right now, if I asked you, aren't I like the best podcast person in the world? Because I'm sitting here in front of you, it might make you more prone to saying yes. So, so everyone is suggestible. Um, but those are things just to keep in mind, those ages. There's a ton of information about that. We might not have time for this podcast, but I'm happy to talk more if it's of interest. One question I do have is I feel like, and correct me if this is incorrect training, but I was essentially trained if if there's concern for sexual abuse, which I know is outside the scope of this episode, it was basically like stop talking to the child so that you're not influencing them and have it um, bring in our, our child abuse colleagues to kind of have a forensic interview. Is there ever a role for non-incidental trauma where that should also be the case where we as the primary care provider or the resident or the person seen in the ER should stop asking interview questions to avoid suggesting a story that may have legal ramifications? Yeah. So we always want to think about, you know, what is best for the child and what do we need to know medically? So think for like the, the example of sexual abuse or physical abuse. There's times when it really is critical for our medical decision making to have information from the child that we don't have right now. So in those cases, we do want, it would be important, like for example, with sexual abuse, sometimes we're making a decision about whether the child needs HIV post-exposure prophylaxis and having that information could really make a difference medically. Um, so that's one thing to think about. The other thing is we, we don't want to ask children over and over and over the same questions. So that, like, that is a consideration. If you know that the child, you have the information you need to do your medical care, you know that you've made a report and that the child is going to be interviewed by child welfare professionals and it's not going to add anything to ask more questions, then that, that's a consideration. And also, like I was mentioning, there is a lot of training to asking questions. So, you know, you don't want to ask suggestible questions. So if you really aren't trained and you know that there's someone, a social worker or someone there who has training, you could ask them to help and to assist. But there are just some basic guidelines is you really want to ask really open-ended questions. So sometimes when you're with a patient who's had physical abuse, it's as simple as asking like, hey, why? what brings you here to the hospital today? Or I can see um, that you have this bruise, like tell me about it. Other things to just think about is your surroundings. So if you, you want to ask if you're concerned about physical abuse and the person who is the perpetrator is standing right there, that's not when you should be asking the child that question. So you want to, a lot of times when we speak with families, we're like, hey, we'd really love to talk with your child alone. And families are understanding and, and cooperative with that. But just really thinking about those things um, when you're, if you are in a position where you need to do an interview. Thank you. I was also curious about, you know, in these cases when you are maybe having a high suspicion for non-external trauma, it might be challenging to approach patients in a non-biased way and families in a non-biased way. And we, of course, always want to provide our best possible care. So do you have any tips on how you may check your biases or help account for that when you're caring for these patients? 
Yeah, I think that is a really important question. And I think one way is using clinical pathways and having like systematics. So when, you know, if you have a pathway where it says, you know, you have an infant with a bruise and this is what we do for every patient. So having those set up can be one way to help with mitigating bias so that, you know, it's really based on the objective findings and the injuries of what the workup is going to be. And then I think with approaching families is is also really explaining objectively, you know, what the findings are and then, you know, why this is raising a concern and why we're doing this. I think being open and honest with families is important. I think sometimes when people might be afraid to mention it um, and they're, but they are concerned, families can sense it and then they feel even more like it's a biased situation versus if you are more open and honest and explaining, hey, these are the findings that we're seeing. Um, and this is what we would do for every child with those findings. That makes a lot of sense to me. I um, Before we go into kind of more uh, details of Tamara's case and, and working up the NETS plans, I'm wondering as a, as a primary care pediatrician who's seen a kid in as a well child exam, is there anything that I can do to help prevent these types of situations from happening? Are there pediatricians that can provide anticipatory guidance to prevent cases of non-accidental trauma? Yes, absolutely. I think that's a really important question. And I think some there's some really exciting new research coming out that can help inform that. One is a research project that was done, uh, secondary analysis on a study of children with bruising. And the children, as part of the study, they had, all of the children had bruising, and then there was an expert panel kind of reviewed all the medical objective findings to determine if it was concerning for abuse or more accidental. But as a second like part of the study, all the parents were asked to describe their child, like describe their attributes and their personalities. And it was realized that in the abuse group, there was more of descriptions that reflected not knowing a lot about child development. So, for example, parents like describing, oh, the child is needy or greedy and they just cry even if I'm taking like a minute. If they're hungry, they're crying because they're a diva and they're needy and hungry. So it was kind of thought like not understanding normal child development could could be a risk factor. So I think that's really an important role for pediatricians to support families in providing education. Another classic example is the education that's given in the newborn nursery about crying and coping with crying to prevent abusive head trauma. In a lot of states, that's mandated. Um, so as a pediatrician, that's another education about developmental level that you can provide and saying, especially when families are coming in and the child has colic, really explaining like this is a normal part of development. It's not a reflection on your parenting. Um, it's not dangerous for the child. Like you could leave the child crying in a safe place and, and take a moment. So those are, are really one part of the answer is providing support and education around development. Another like really exciting literature that's coming out is about social supports and how that has impacted. So there's a study that just came out in pediatrics in June about earned income tax credits and how in states where there were earned income tax credits, there was actually decreased child maltreatment reports. Wow. So I can also send that article if people are interested in reading it. So I think as pediatricians, our role in assessing uh, family needs and being able to provide resources, linking families with these new programs that are available could be really helpful. Any like screening, if there's needs, childcare needs or any concerns for intimate partner violence in the home, screening and supporting families in that way could be a way pediatricians can help. 
That's so sad, but also not surprising of how much things, the social determinants of health, including income, can um, have major effects on family health. The article is called Short-Term Effects of Tax Credits on Rates of Child Maltreatment Reports in the United States. Amazing. So I can send that to you. Yeah, and we'll put we it can, in the show notes. We can so link it in the show can, notes, yeah. Yeah, check it out. Hey team, before we continue, I wanted to share an uncommon find. If you're looking for a new pick of the week, Uncommon Goods is your place to look. Uncommon Goods makes your holiday shopping stress-free by looking across the globe for the most remarkable, truly unique gifts. And for anyone on your shopping list, Uncommon Goods knows exactly what they want. They have National Park glassware, which is great if you want to convince your non-residency friends that you still get time to travel. A kebab grilling set, which is a must-buy for any wilderness buff. And of course, the portable campfire that Justin used to woo his new wife. From banana hats to tabletop cornhole, they have unique gifts for even the worst people to shop for. Yeah, I have my eye on the bioluminescent octopus orb. More importantly, when you shop at Uncommon Goods, you're supporting artists and small independent businesses. These fine products are often made in small batches, so shop now before they sell out this holiday season. Uncommon Goods looks for products that are high quality, unique, and often handmade or made in the U.S. From art and jewelry to kitchen, home, and bar, Uncommon Goods has more gift categories than a Christmas-themed Jeopardy episode. With every purchase you make at Uncommon Goods, they give $1 back to a nonprofit partner of your choice, and they've donated more than $2.5 million already to date. That's a ton. That's even more than a lot of octopus orbs. That is a lot of octopus orbs. To get 15% off your next gift, go to UncommonGoods.com slash Cribsiders. That's UncommonGoods.com slash Cribsiders for 15% off. Don't miss out on this limited time offer. Uncommon Goods, we are all out of the ordinary. Let's keep moving. And so, Audrey, maybe give us a little bit of a, an update on Tamara, then we can kind of talk about some next steps in caring for this patient. Sure. Thank you. And that coping with crying, I feel like that's a great pearl. Mm. You know, I, I always, we've, I think we fo- emphasize heavily what to do in the case of a fever and safe sleep and those sorts of things in the newborn period. But really supporting the parents in that way, I think, is extremely important. So thank you for sharing that. Okay. So case update. You perform your physical exam, which also reveals a five-pound weight loss and bruising on the buttocks. So now knowing this new information, what additional questions might you want to ask Tamara's mother? Yeah, so the history is such a key piece. And I think we were talking about, like you were just mentioning with fever, and when we have these medical complaints, I think, and you mentioned illness scripts, like people feel comfortable and they go in and they ask when did this start? And then they think about a differential diagnosis and then ask the questions. And I find sometimes with physical abuse, it's the same process, but I think there's something more to it. Like maybe people have an emotional response or feel more nervous, but really going back to those basics is is really the key. So for your history, you're going to really, the first part of your history of present illness, you're going to really want to ask really detailed questions about what happened. So, for example, you'd want to, I'd like to really start by asking, you know, when was the child last well? And get really specific examples of, you know, on this day, she was running around, she was playing, jumping up and down. So you can get a sense that the child, you know, didn't have a broken leg at that time. Um, And then if there is a mechanism of injury that's reported, I really want to get as much detail as possible so that I can like literally picture in my head what happened. So I'll ask like exactly when it happened, where, who was there who witnessed it and did they witness it, you know, visually or witness it, you know, by hearing. 
and then you know really getting them to describe if if they say like a, a patient fell how did they fall what were they doing before did they um, one example is a stair fall so you could fall down each stair like one at a time so have them describe that versus where they catapulted from the top stair all the way to the bottom so you can see that that can be really different. So you really just want to get as much detail as possible to help you with that part of the, you know, does the mechanism match the injury? Like that's going to give you as much rich information about what the mechanism is actually that happened. And in addition to the history of the chief complaint, I imagine social history is a major thing here. And I know that in a couple of personal anecdotes, the the mom you're talking to is just as appalled or upset as the physician. And it does kind of start veering off into a whodunit game a little bit. What are some things about the social history or, or other exposures? What are some questions that you as an expert would go through to be kind of asking that might be at, uh, put the child at higher risk? So one thing to never forget on the social history is to ask if the child has siblings. Because if you're evaluating a young infant when you're concerned for physical abuse, um, there's actually a study that showed um, that other siblings at home may also have injuries. So I remember a patient I saw once who we evaluated and was a twin, and the twin was actually at home and had injuries. And when we got the twin to the hospital, actually needed to be admitted to the ICU immediately for urgent care. So always to think about who lives at home and like, are there other children? And if there is a real concern for abuse, uh, making sure that those children can have a medical evaluation as well. So those are um, important things to to remember, to to ask that one question. If I had to pick one, I would ask that one. But there's more details if you want me to go into other questions we ask on the social history as well. Yeah, I think I think that's a great pearl that I would not have thought of and it's great and I appreciate the reference. Um, yeah, maybe some other social history questions because as we talk about social determinants of health, I imagine this is something um, worth talking about. Yeah, so we really do ask, you know, who lives in the home? Who's involved in the child's care? Do they go to daycare? Are there babysitters? Um, especially if, you know, we have this patient had kind of been a week that there has been concern. So like who all is involved in taking care of the child? And, um, you know, are there daycares? If there is, if there's concern for injury at a daycare, you'd want to know that as well because there's other children at that daycare. I think there are risk factors that we do ask about. And I think that came back to the question that someone asked earlier about bias. So I think when you ask it, it is important to remember that there are families who will have no risk factors who we are concerned for abuse. And there are families who do have risk factors where the injury, you know, is really explained by the accidental mechanism. So we don't use the risk factors to, to decide if we're concerned, but it can be helpful to know, you know, the, if there are resources that the family could benefit from and get a sense of, you know, the child's social history. So some of those risk factors would be, have there been concerns in the past prior child protective services involvement? Sometimes that can even be helpful in cases where there's accidents because if child protective services involved, you know, you can notify them so they're aware of everything and, you know, help provide additional supports to the family. Um, we ask about any concerns of violence in the home. Of course, we would only ask if we don't, if you ask if both parents are together, that's not a great time to screen for intimate partner violence, but that's another question that we ask. Um, we can ask about any financial stressors and maybe things that we could do to help. Um, any other barriers that the family has with medical care would be a good question. Um, any concerns for substance use or mental health concerns that we could, again, you know, help provide resources for. 
And are those things that do have an association with non-accidental trauma, presumably? Yes, there there would be, um, you know, those are, are risk factors, you know, in homes where there is violence, intimate partner violence, there, you know, there could be risk factors. So we do ask those questions. But again, just to remember, some, some of our patients where there are very concerns for abuse, there might be, you know, all negative responses to those questions. And then how about on, you know, we've talked about the history of the complaint, we've talked about some social history, physical exam, let's say the patient's in front of us, um, what are some things we should be looking for in physical exam? Is there any guidance on on how we should uh, be doing a physical exam? Yeah, sure. And I just wanted to mention for the history, other important pieces are we we do the like review of systems, family history, past medical history, and those help us to identify if there are underlying medical conditions that we should be worried mm-hmm. about that are known or that we should be testing for. And they can also help us to detect if there's concerns for other injuries. So some examples that we're talking about fractures, we would definitely want to ask if there's any history of unexplained fractures in the family, dental issues, extremely short stature, that would make us think of the family history of OI. And we also would want to ask the diet history of this child to see like maybe the child's exclusively breastfed and she's 16 months, so that would make us think about rickets. We want to ask on the review of systems, like any neurological symptoms that would make us concerned for head trauma or abdominal trauma symptoms like vomiting, belly pain. So those are some other pieces to round out. And then a really critical piece for our patients is developmental history, because that's such a key piece of you know what some injuries can happen with a caregiver not really being aware of, like a toddler fracture, which is a you know subtle spiral fracture of the tibia. So that can happen with a toddler, even if a parent might not be aware of a history. But I have seen infants who are like three months old who've been diagnosed with a toddler fracture, but they don't even, they don't actually toddle. So they, they can't have a toddler fracture. So that's such a key piece is that developmental history as well. That's really helpful. Anything else before we move on to physical exam that are things we should be looking out for on exam, on, on history, on social history, on family history, on, um, I think for when you are having really young infants, you also really want to get a really detailed birth history as well. And what are things that you're looking for in the birth history? Is it things like prolonged bleeding? Like, are there key things that you're looking for in a birth history? So especially children who have um, like some injuries that could be associated with birth. So we sometimes like if you have a two week old that could be associated with subdural hemorrhages from birth. So you'd want to get a detailed history about that. Um, any clavicle fractures that were known from birth. So that those are key pieces of the birth history that we'd want to get. So this is great. So I, it sounds like, you know, the approach you take, which makes a lot of sense, is approaching like any other kind of chief complaint, going through kind of your heuristics of, you know, taking a full history, getting the full story, uh, seeing if there's recurrent problems, if it's if there's chronic issues um, that you're not missing, identifying other risk factors in the home or in the patient. This makes a lot of sense. And so on the exam table, what are ways, is there a framework to kind of look at how to do a physical exam to get more data? Yeah. So you really want to do a very detailed physical exam. And again, you're looking for, if you're concerned for injury, you're looking for other injuries. And then you're also looking for any signs of underlying medical issues. So we were talking about OI. So look at the sclera. Are they blue? Does the child have dysmorphic features like a triangular facies? But if you have to just remember one thing on the physical exam, I would say to remember the bruising clinical decision rule, and it's called 10-4-FACES-P. 
And the bruising clinical decision rule highlights some skin findings that should make you alert that there could be a concern for abuse that you would need to do physical evaluation, more evaluation. So it's not like if you have this, you're automatically diagnosing abuse. It's just these should be raising like a red flag or a concern that, hey, I need to think about this and I need to do workup. I need to call the child abuse team in my hospital. So that that's a key thing. 10 for facies P. This is great. So these are kind of those high specificity findings or things like the the fractures that would also be making us a little bit more hyper aware and want to make sure we're not missing anything. Yes. And the rule was validated on children under four, but I think in older children too, when you see bruising, I'll explain the different areas. You, you should It should raise your alertness. So 10 stands for thorax. So that includes like the trunk, the abdomen. If you think about like toddlers running around, they're going to hit like the bony parts of their bodies and get bruises over bony prominences. So it does make sense. Like abdominal bruising is not something that we we see commonly with accidents. The E stands for ears, so ear bruising. And that one is important to note because if you're doing a cursory exam and you're not really looking like inside the ears and behind the ears, you could easily miss that. And that is like an injury that would, like if our patient had ear bruising, that would really raise our concern. So it's important to specifically look at that. And like some patients have long hair that's covering the ears. So really remembering to, to look at the ears. And Kristen, can I ask, what, uh, why is that? Is that something just with non-incidental trauma where the parent will squeeze the ears? Is that a common? Yeah, just also it's not as common for accidental injuries. Fair, so fair. when you're like running around, you're going to hit like the bony parts. There are some accidental ear injuries. Like we had a patient was jumping up and down and then fell on like hit the ear right on a bedpost. So that made perfect sense as to why they had an ear injury. But in general, it's rare with, you know, normal activities and falling off a bike, you're not going to, that's not going to be like the first injury that you're going to get. So, um, and that mechanisms can be either a direct blow or twisting of the ears that could result in that. So that was the E. The N stands for the neck. So that's another one too, that you could miss if you don't like specifically look like raise the head and look under the, the neck um, area to see if there's bruising on the neck. Four, it stands for under the age of 4.99 months. So that's something to also remember, like those who don't cruise rarely bruise. So babies who are just lying there and not doing anything, they're not going to get bruises in the same way as a toddler who's running around. And then the next part, faces, talks about different areas of the face that are concerning. So the F stands for the frena. So the frena like that connect the under the lip to the gums and then the one under the tongue. And again, if you don't do a detailed exam and look for that, you can miss that. So it's something to like make sure you lift up the gums and then lift up the tongue to, to check that area. A stands for angle of the jaw. C is cheeks, the face cheeks, especially that fleshy part. So not, you know, like we have the bone of our, our mandible, but if when you see bruising in that fleshy part, that's raising a concern. The E stands for the eyelids. And the S stands for subconjunctival hemorrhage. So like bleeding in the white parts of the eye. And then the last letter is the P, which stands for pattern bruising. So when you see bruising, like if a patient is struck with an object, then it breaks the capillaries underneath. And then you actually see the silhouette of that object. So some of the common patterns that you would see would be like two parallel lines that could be from a belt. Or if a belt is held in a loop shape, you can see a loop. Mark. So thinking about the 
patterns that would raise your concern as well. I feel like those are the images we've seen in like the child abuse noon conferences that always kind of stick with you and are pretty yes. heart-wrenching. And it is hard to sometimes look at the images, but it is important to have that so you can recognize it. Because when you're sitting in a lecture about child abuse and someone showing you a picture, like you're going to think about child abuse, but those sometimes pop up when you're not expecting it, like in your well-child visit and you see it. And out of context, I think that's why it's good to, to have like training and to familiarize yourself with some of the common patterns that are concerning. That's a, that's a really great point. Um, anything else on the physical exam that we should be investigating or looking for? Yeah, so some of the other things that you want to look for are other concerns for injuries. So you want to um, make sure you do a good abdominal exam. Another thing that you want to do is measure the head circumference, which is a something that's pretty easy to do. We talked about at the beginning a little bit about some like more nonspecific complaints like vomiting in infants or fussiness that could be associated with head trauma. So looking at the head circumference and if you're able to plot it, and if you saw like the head circumference had really jumped from the 50th to over the 100th percentile, that would be something that would raise a concern that there's something neurological or in the head that's going on. And I know Audra mentioned in this case, there was significant weight loss. Is that, again, presumably raising concerns for, for medical neglect without some other type of cause? Yeah, you, it's really important to check the growth parameters to get a global assessment. And then you would, you know, if you do see a weight loss, you would definitely want to do a complete workup, kind of the same process for why they could be having, like maybe they're having a medical condition um, that's mimicking, like making them more likely to fracture. So it, it's just like one more thing that you want to be objective and evaluate that. But definitely growth parameters and making sure that the, the child is gaining weight appropriately is an important piece. That could either signal a medical condition or more concerns for abuse or neglect. And so let's say that we found one of these high specific issues where either they had skin findings that um, were suggestive of non-accidental trauma based on this 10-4 facies P or a specific fracture or like, again, just the recurrent emesis and something else that is um, getting worried. So we're bringing in our child abuse team at, at Cashlat Children's Hospital, the hospital we work in. Um, we have a wonderful child abuse um, team who are just saints and wonderful people. Um, and as, as a member on that team, when you come to see the patient, in addition to the tips that you've given us, what are some of the things that, that you do? Is there a typical workup? Are there typical things um, on top of what the, the primary provider's done? What's kind of the next steps in doing a non-accidental trauma evaluation? Right. So you do your history and physical, which are the cornerstone of all medicine. And then you're going to do, in some cases, you'll want to do additional workup, like lab work or radiology studies. And that's going to be based on your findings of your physical and history. And then that's also going to be taking into consideration some guidelines that are out there from, for example, from the American Academy of Pediatrics. And again, there's like two main categories of things that you're looking for when you're doing a workup. It's is there an underlying medical condition that's predisposing or mimicking this? And are there other injuries? And there's some, in, when you do your physical exam, you might see obvious signs of injuries. Like you might see the elbow is also really swollen and deformed. So you're like, I think there might be an, a fracture. And so you would obviously order an x-ray for that. But there can also be what we call occult injuries, which are injuries that are not clinically detectable. So that's why we do screening for occult injury. 
And you can imagine that if, in this case, the patient also had multiple other injuries, that would raise your concern even more for non-accidental trauma or physical abuse. So that's why we, we want to have that information. So the guidelines include doing a skeletal survey. And skeletal surveys need to follow the American College of Radiology guidelines to have, you know, what they should contain. So it's like, for example, individual x-rays of the femur, of the tibia, of the hands, of the feet. So one thing to check when patients have gotten a skeletal survey at another hospital is did they do like a full skeletal survey? Sometimes you might need to redo some of the films. If a patient just got a baby gram and one image of their whole body, you would need to redo that because you would miss some of the subtle fractures that we were were looking for. And skeletal surveys are recommended for children under the age of two years when there's concern for physical abuse. So that those children should be getting, like, let's say our, in this case, our, you know, you, our patient came in with an ear bruise and a neck bruise and they're under two, then they would get a skeletal survey. For kids who are between the ages of two and five, it's sort of at the discretion of the clinician. And the reason is when the injuries that we're looking for that are occult are more common in the young children. And when children are older, they're more able to verbalize or walk and talk and it's more reliable on your, on your physical exam and your history. But there are some cases, let's say you have a patient who's severely injured and is like in a coma, then you can't rely as much on your physical exam, then you would do the skeletal survey in that age group, two to five. And then for children over five, there's limited yield of the skeletal survey. So it's not something you're going to be doing like on a teenager. So that's good to know. And sometimes outside agencies will like be asking for a skeletal survey in like an eight or nine year old. So it's good to know those that, you know, those age ranges for that. That is helpful. And, and, Whenever I feel like the child abuse team comes in, there's there's a lot of ruling out some of these other rare diseases. Is that also kind of part of the general process or Yes. So again, you we really want to go with the like specifics of each case and then think about the, the history that you've collected on the family history as well, um, and you know, the child's history. So if you have a child who has like multiple loop marks and you have a great clinical history that the child's never had, you know, concerns for any bleeding issues. There's no family history. In that case, you, know, like you might think like a bleeding disorder. I've kind of ruled it out clinically because if a child has hemophilia, they're not going to present with loop marks as their first finding that even if you have hemophilia, you're not going to get patterned bruising. So you can use your clinical judgment, but some of the main categories of things that we look for are any bleeding concerns. And there is a guideline from AAP that will outline to you what specific you know, factor levels um, you want to get. Usually starts with screening PT, PTT, and then um, it, actually the guideline will tell you for abusive head trauma, here's the workup that you get. And for bruising, here are the workup, like the different factor levels that you should be getting. And then you can also consult with a hematologist if some of those are positive or if there's concerns that are raised. And then for fractures, some of the things we think about are are ricket. You know, we talked a little bit about the dietary history and thinking, is there concern for rickets or um, under metabolic bone disease? So you can get a vitamin D level if you're concerned, alkaline phosphatase. You can also look at, you know, the x-rays and make sure there's no signs of rickets. And think also about genetic testing for osteogenesis imperfecta based on, you know, your history that you got and the, the whole clinical scenario. So one question I have is sort of when I think about rollouts, I also think about like Hickam's dictum sort of like, yes, is it possible? I mean, how often do we see a child who may have a hematological problem and have non-accidental trauma? Like, 
how often should we be concerned that we've done this workup? We've said, oh yeah, they have this, you know, this bleeding disorder, but um, I, I need to really keep non-accidental trauma still on my differential. Yeah, those are really important questions because children who have underlying medical issues can also experience physical abuse. It doesn't make them immune. I think it's, again, like really thinking back to the pattern recognitions. And if a child has a bleeding disorder, they still wouldn't present with belt marks or loop marks or ear bruising only. And you can also work with your colleagues who are experts in that. So if you're, you know, have hematology colleagues and you you feel still concerned, you could ask them, hey, is this how you would see children present with this Um, and help, help, they can help you work through it. And that's another you know, thing to think about when you have children who have injuries to multiple body systems, so they have fractures and bruising and head trauma, then, you know, like a, a hemophilia wouldn't cause a fracture. So that would also kind of inform your, your concerns and your, your workup. So let's say you did this workup, you're getting results back, and at this point you have very high suspicion and you need to disclose this concern to the family. I know that can be a really challenging discussion. So how do you usually go about approaching that with families and what guiding them towards what to expect in the next steps? Yeah, sure. There were just a few other um, screeners for possible occult injury that I wanted to mention. So another injury that can present clinically occult is abdominal trauma. So I actually remember a patient who was eating goldfish crackers and was kind of walking around, but he had very concerning bruising in the positive 10-4 facies. And so we use um, blood work, liver enzymes to screen for a possible abdominal trauma. So we usually get AST, ALT, um, amylase, and lipase. And this patient's like AST was 600. And we did a CAT scan and he actually had a liver laceration. And like, so clinically you, you wouldn't have noticed because he was walking around with the eating goldfish crackers. So that, that's another thing that we screen for. And then the other thing to think about is screening for occult head injury. So that the guidelines for the skeletal survey that I mentioned were very clear about the ages, like the two age. There isn't as clear guidelines for when to do screening for head trauma, occult screening. So obviously, if your patient has like physical signs of, or you know, like they're having seizures or vomiting, then you're you're going to do the head in screening for symptom because they're symptomatic. But there are infants who can have um, some head trauma, like subdural hemorrhages, and they are clinically occult. So I think the practice varies of what age we do that, but it can be like six months or under a year. Let's say a patient who's you know four months old comes in with an unexplained femur fracture. Um, if they have rib fractures, that's a time when you're going to do neuroimaging as well to screen for occult head injury. And unfortunately, like head ultrasounds aren't a good screening tool to rule out um, head abusive head trauma. And unfortunately, also an eye exam isn't a screening tool to rule out head trauma. If someone does have head trauma and subdural hemorrhages and bleeding, you are going to get an eye exam, but a normal eye exam wouldn't rule out um, head trauma. So the the screening is a CT or an MRI. Thank you. That's really helpful to know. So in this case, if you did, let's say, see example of a subdural bleed and are concerned about trauma, what like how do you go about discussing this with the family? Yeah, that's a really important question. So let's say in our case, we 
are concerned, like maybe she had pattern bruising and ear bruising, and we are concerned. I think that, like you mentioned, that can something that can feel like hard to do. But I think really thinking about that, it's it's really important to share that with the family, and kind of go in with that framework of why it's so important what you're doing and sharing it. And as a physician, it's never our role to know who is the perpetrator of abuse. And I, I think you mentioned that Justin at the beginning is like. Maybe the parent is unaware that the child had been abused. Maybe that it wasn't, it's a non-offending parent. It was another person. It was at the daycare. And if you didn't share that information with the parent, you're not allowing the parent to do, protect the child or to have that really important information. So if you had a patient who had a really terrible diagnosis like leukemia, you would need to tell the family so that they would know what to do and to do the treatment. And so it's, if you think about it with that frame of mind, I think that's really helpful before you start approaching it. I think it's also really helpful to be objective and informative and really start with like, you, you know, you brought your child in here today, in today and we've done these tests and these are the findings that we've had and like be objective with the findings. And also remember using language that the parents can understand. So I remember one time we were telling a family about multiple rib fractures and a nurse picked up that the family wasn't understanding that we were talking about broken bones. And when we said that, the family was like, oh my gosh, we, we didn't realize they had broken bones. So remembering that you're using language. And then I think really being open and honest and sharing with families and saying like, you know, every time we see children with a bruise on their ear or a bruise in this specific pattern, to us that makes us worried that someone has hurt the child. Really being honest and open about it and explaining it. And then explaining, you know, I'm a, as a physician, it's the law that's mandated that I, that I need to make a report to Child Protective Services. And that's one step. And then we're also going to be continuing to do medical workup. And you can explain, you know, those steps that you're going to be taking. And as part of that process where you, you've informed the, the mother or the, the family member you have talked about the mandatory reporting, as far as net steps from a, a medical legal standpoint, what information is important to document, or do you have recommendations for documentation when we have a patient that there's concern for non-incidental trauma? Yes, so documentation is very important, and really our, like I know our team does very thorough documentation, and some of the key things that you want to document is all the, you know, we're asking a very detailed history about what happened, so we're writing that down, and writing also attribute, like attribute to who's, who reported that. So a lot of times in charts, it'll say like patient fell. Like we would want to say like mother reported that the patient fell and it happened on this day and like really give all the details. We did talk a little bit about asking information of children. And we talked about how there could be sometimes like suggestibility or leading questions. So if you do get information from a child, it's good to write how that came out. So you, you, you said, I said to the patient, hello, my name is Dr. Fortin. And the patient said, I'm here because so-and-so hit me. So if you write like what elicited the child to say that, then anyone reading it could see that you did not ask a suggestible or, or biased question. And another thing that I really think is important, I hope people will remember, is to take pictures of skin injuries. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times the injuries don't last that long or they can change over time. So if you're there um, and you're seeing it, to take a picture of it, um, and that's really important. And every hospital probably has a protocol or a setup for how to do that. If, if you have Epic and they have Haiku, like that's how you do it at your institution. So you can follow your institutional protocol for doing that. But it's really important if you can remember to do that. 
This is great. And one thing, you know, for our patients, so we've gone through kind of the whole smattering of, of talking to the patient and family, getting a social history, getting a, a physical exam, using these great uh, resources that help us use objective findings and, and evidence-based uh, workup and using the, the AP, AP guidance. Um, one question that I have kind of just to, to bring us back to the 30,000 point view What's the typical age? You know, when when are we really focusing? When should we be thinking about these patients? Is it everywhere up to adolescence? Is it mostly in newborns? Are there specific time frames and ages that fit the the most common illness script for these kids that are presenting? And, and maybe like where they present, whether it's primary care versus ED. Yeah. So abuse can happen in all ages. I think looking at specific injuries. So for abusive head trauma, that's more most common in infants. The reason why people started that crying prevention was they noticed that the peak of abusive head traumas are corresponded with the peak in colic ages. Mm. Um, abdominal trauma typically is a little bit older, like more the toddlers that they present with. In general, when we see like fractures, um, we are more concerned in non-mobile, like the same we talked about bruising and that, you know, non-mobile infants, those, those are times that raise our concern just because the children aren't as active and, you know, an infant's not going to be running around or playing football in a way that they could get bruising. So I think those really young kids are, are times that are vulnerable for kids and they present with those, you know, injuries that we're talking about today. But we definitely see older children um, and teenagers who have also been experiencing physical abuse. Well, thank you so much. This has really been a super helpful discussion. And I know I personally am going to take a lot away from this. Uh, but I just wanted to ask if you have any main take-home points for the listeners that you just want to hammer home. Yeah, so I would say to think about the same diagnostic process that you do with all illnesses. Then you think about, I'm going to have a differential diagnosis and I'm going to take a history and do a physical exam and then do the workup. Um, and then thinking about that's going to help you to under, you know, make an opinion about whether it could be an accident, abuse, or you know, are you concerned about an underlying medical condition? We talked about some of the guidelines for doing workup for occult injury. And we talked about the skeletal surveys in kids under two. We talked about to remember to ask about other children in the home who could, if you're concerned, if you're seeing a child who you're concerned has been abused, to ask about the other kids to make sure that they can be safe and get a medical evaluation. And then remembering the photo documentation as well. Excellent. Thank you. So last question. I know we have a song that we're going to link to in the show notes, as well as several evidence-based recommendations, but do you have any other resources that you'd like to plug for the audience? We talked about some of those key articles that we can, um, so the ones about the fracture morphology, if people are interested in knowing, we talked a little bit about some of the fractures that are most specific for abuse, but there's some more details, like additional ones that we didn't have time to mention, and um, there's some that are moderate specificity, so I could link to some of those um, resources for that as well. There's also um, clinical pathways. So some hospitals have clinical pathways that are, you know, you might have some at your own institution and there's some that are also publicly available. So those are other great resources as well. That's great. Yeah, we, we'll take any of them and we, can, we put them in the show notes and can share them with our listeners. So I think the pathways, the, the guidance and the Casey Musgraves YouTube video are going to be very popular. And so we're happy to share and I know our listeners will be very grateful. This has been wonderful. You know, I think we, we've gone through the whole 
presentation. We have great resources to continue learning more. Just want to take the time to, to say thank you so much for coming on the Tripsiders, for sharing your expertise, your knowledge, for talking about a very important topic and helping break it down to make it a little bit more uh, manageable for a lot of us uh, as providers. So thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. And thanks to everyone for listening and learning more about this. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge. To do that, we need your feedback. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player, or you can email us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our wonderful producer for this episode, Dr. Audra Ness, our showrunner, Dr. Sam Mazur, our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and the newsletter. Thank you for joining us tonight. I've been Justin Lee Burke. This is Audra Ennis. And this has been Chris the Chi Manchu. Thank you. Good night. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.